Unless you understand that Bear Grylls show is entirely staged, don't watch it at all. Yeah, here, Far North, Far North Bushcraft. Yeah, a guy who owns the channel is Lonnie. I hope he's doing all right, by the way. He, he had to lay there, first of all. He laid there for five hours, waiting for his body temperature to come down, and it, it was scary. Just so happened to be a cave right there. I said, we need to get in there. We got in there, and you could just feel the temperature drop like 25 degrees. Tell you just how simple it is to clean out your cooking gear. I don't carry soap. I just scoop up some water out of the creek. I wash out my mug. My cup is gonna go right in the fire the next time I stop. I don't have to carry this trash, you know why? Because the sandwich bag that I'm left over with, I throw in the fire and it burns up and it's gone. I can already hear the protests. Oh my gosh, he just admitted. Well, that destroys the environment, doesn't it? Keep it full of water, keep it by the fire all night long. You'll thank me. Welcome back to The Practical Woodsman. I'm Rut, your host of The Practical Woodsman and the creator of it, by the way. Yes, it's my genius that brought it about. Happy to have you all with me here this week. Let me tell you what we're going to talk about. 19 tips for when you get lost in the wilderness. That's right, 19 wonderful tips that I'm going to give you for just in case you ever get lost in the woods. We're not going to stop there. Before we get started on today's show... Let me recommend to you that you join our online community over there at thepracticalwoodsman.locals.com. You can also download the locals.com app from the App Store and just search for The Practical Woodsman. With that out of the way, there's a I got a comment on a, an episode that I'd uploaded not long ago. And uh, in that episode... I was showing off these freeze-dried meals. Actually, what I was doing in that video is that I was actually, in reality, sitting here in my studio preparing for a big backpacking trip in the wintertime. So I was fiddling about and taking care of my stuff, and I realized, you know what? This is a lost opportunity to share with other people what I'm doing. So I really should turn on a camera and turn it on me and then just and continue what I'm doing. So that's what I did. And at that point in the video, what I was doing was I was transferring these freeze-dried backpacking packaged meals from like Mountain House. That, that's the one I've got here, a Mountain House meal. And it comes kind of like in this aluminum uh, impregnated paper pouch. And I was transferring it from this over to this sandwich bag here. I realized that uh, some of you are just listening. You're not watching the video. So i got to keep that in mind and uh, narrate better what I'm doing. But I'm holding up here one of these backpacking mountain house freeze-dried meals in its original packaging. And right next to it, I've got a, one of those meals here in a sandwich bag. And I do that. For every backpacking trip, I will take all my meals out of these and transfer them over into these. If you want to see that process, watch watch that video. I think it was the 
previous video to this one. So you can see the size difference. Quite a bit of difference. The feller that sent me the comment, his comment was this. Let me just read it to you. He says, I have trouble understanding your logic on moves, moving freeze-dried meals into a Ziploc bag or using your cup to cook it in. Let me show you my my whole cook set. Now, this is it basically. This is not, I didn't want to get my the actual kettle out that I take with me, but I take a kettle and I take the BCB Adventure water bottle and the NATO Crusader cup. Let me get that out of this packaging here or this carry case and show that to you. Alright, it's also got a lid in there, but I'm not going to get that out right now. Here's my Crusader cup, here's my water bottle. My whole set, cooking and water and everything, consists of this. Well, you know what's missing is my spoon, but you'll see that here in a second. So I got a water bottle, I've got a cup to drink out of, to cook in, to um, boil water in, but I also carry, I've also started carrying a kettle. And uh, the reason why I like carrying a kettle, it really uh, come in handy this past winter time. When it was, uh, it was like 16 degrees outside Fahrenheit. Alexa, what's 16 degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? 16 degrees Fahrenheit is minus 8.89 degrees Celsius. Okay, point eight, uh, minus 8.8 degrees Celsius. That is cold. That was the high during the day. So at night, what I learned about kettles is that it's awfully nice to be able to take a kettle, which is bigger than this, by the way. There's a reason why I don't carry this particular kettle. It's awfully nice to be able to boil water and then just leave it hanging over the fire or, leave, or just set it down next to the fire, fill her back up, and just keep hot water all night long, whether you think you're going to want it or not. Because when it gets very, very cold, just drinking some hot water or drinking some hot tea, drinking some hot liquid consistently through the night really goes a long way in warming up your insides and just keeping you warm through the night. That's different than the way I used to do things. See, I, I never used to carry a kettle, and this was all I carried. And what happens with, uh, well, again, for, you, for those of you who are just listening, I'm holding up the Crusader cup, which is a stainless steel bomb-proof cup that the uh, British Army, I think, uses, and I think NATO uses it. But anyway, got some nice, beautiful butterfly handles on it there. Uh, what I used to do is I just boiled water as necessary. Like whenever I thought I wanted a hot drink or something, I would just start from scratch, you know, scoop some water and boil that water. Whenever I wanted to cook, I just boil the water, get it cooking. Uh, that's, there's a better way. And I just learned it this, this past winter time. The better way is to get yourself a kettle that holds just a little bit slightly more than this Crusader cup does. Keep it full of water, keep it by the fire all night long. You'll thank me. You'll thank me in the wintertime. It is so nice to go, boy, I'm, I'm starting to get a little cold here, even, even though I'm right here next to the fire. And then just to have hot water at the ready all night long. So this is it. This is my whole cook set, minus the, the spoon.
which you'll see here. I carry a titanium spoon. So back to his statement. He says, first of all, you say, I want the Crusader Cup because it's capable of X, Y, and Z. I agree, but just because you use the bag, remember, most people, I said, like to cook directly into these stupid bags, uh, this trash. He says, just because uh, you want to you use the Crusader Cup doesn't mean you can't also cook in your trash. He doesn't say that, but that's my word, not his. Okay, he says it doesn't negate you know, the fact that you can still use the Crusader Cup. He says, second of all, this Mountain House trash bag is a much more reliable container, and I think this is a pretty hilarious argument. It's a much more reliable container than my sandwich bag that I transfer all my food into. So his argument is I should carry this because I might want to repurpose it. I want, might want to build a, an airplane out of this. I might want to carry water in this. I might want to use it to patch a hole in the top of my shelter with it or you know whatever. Ridiculous argument. This is trash. If I'm carrying this and now I'm holding up my water bottle which remember is just a part of my set, right? So this is the set that I carry. My water bottle, my cup, also cook pot, and my kettle. Let me tell you why I don't like carrying these besides the 900 reasons I already explained. All right, I already explained that this is much more compact. It's much lighter. Another thing he says is that by transferring into this plastic bag, this potentially, this food that has potentially a 30-year shelf life is reduced. Oh gosh, so you mean I'm only going to get five years out of it instead of 30? <laughs> Who is hanging on to these things 30 years after they buy them? Nobody. Nobody. And I see that they are using these now, selling these for these survival food kits. I'm telling you, you're a fool if you're spending $500 on a bucket of these for your emergency food meals. And I explained why in a recent episode where I was showing off emergency bags, all right? My emergency car bag, my emergency carry bag, and I talked about having an emergency set up in my basement at home. And I told you the three, actually it's four, preparedness strategies. There's, these things are not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, the word's escaping me right now, but there's no flexibility to these, I, I reckon, is what I'm saying. So I'm holding up here one of these freeze-dried meals, which are great for backpacking. It's beef stroganoff with noodles. What if, what if I want noodles? What if I don't want beef stroganoff noodles? What if I just want noodles? Well, I'm screwed because the way this comes is the way you got to prepare it. So what's a much more practical solution to your emergency food preparedness you know we're talking about not something you're carrying on your back but just a, a stash that you're going to have somewhere the more practical solution is to stock up on lots of pasta stock up on lots of pasta that'll last a long time stack stock up on lots of rice it'll last a long long time stock up on a lot of uh, like powdered taters those will last a long long time and then go and get yourself a bunch of spices now instead of being forced into eating 
the way these things are prepared beforehand that you may not have the taste for. By buying the base ingredients, then you're, you're giving yourself much more flexibility to create lots of different types of dishes. And the stuff lasts forever. I've got a huge emergency container of rice, which it's, it's at least five, six years old. And I just poured, pulled rice out of it this week and ate it and it's perfectly good. So you don't have to spend $500 on this, this, this gimmicky stuff. Buy the non-perishables or the long shelf life stuff, beans, you know, just beans, rice, things of that nature with spices. And those things will last forever and ever and ever. And then you have much more flexibility than you do with these. But anyway, back to this. Holding up again this uh, mountain house meal. As I explained, these things do not come down to the size that they do in a sandwich bag. In a sandwich bag, you save tons of space. I can tell this person's never tried this. He's complaining about it, never even tried it yet. Buddy, try it before you start criticizing it or saying that you don't understand why I'm telling you to do it. Try it first. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it. If you like carrying the trash, you think you're going to repurpose the trash, then you go ahead and keep doing it your way. But, you know, you might want to try it my way and just see if you like it. You might want to see what the benefits are. Now, here's another big thing it comes down to. He says that I have to clean my mug to some degree. In other words, if I pour from this sandwich bag, I pour my mountain house food, which remember I've transferred to this sandwich bag. I pour it in my mug, put the lid on that. I sit, wait around for nine minutes, and then I eat, and then I just eat out of my mug. He says I have to wash that out. Okay, are you telling me you don't have to wash this out? So you've cooked directly in this trash packaging and now there's a bunch of gunk left in there. You're just going to stick that back in your backpack? You know, if you're carrying this thing around with you, you're going to have to wash that out too, aren't you? Especially in the summertime. A bunch of bugs and gnats and everything flying around following you down the trail. And you're telling me you're not going to wash this out? You're just going to stick it in your backpack like the trash back in your backpack? Well, guess what? I rinse my mug out and I'm done. And I don't have to carry this trash. You know why? Because the sandwich bag that I'm left over with, I throw in the fire and it burns up and it's gone. So all of these things that I transfer into these sandwich bags, when I'm done with them, I throw them in the fire, they burn up, they disappear, they're gone forever. You can't do that with these. Why not? Because they've got some kind of metal or aluminum lining to them. So you carry this into the woods, you have, you're stuck carrying this with you for the duration of the entire trip. No matter how much junk is in it, you're just stuck with the trash. Now, I can already hear the protests going on. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. He just admitted that he throws the little trash, his little sandwich bag. Well, that destroys the environment, doesn't it? Ruins the environment. What I would say about that is that if you have a problem with it, take it up with the people who invented plastic. 
take it up with the corporations who are making sandwich bags. All right? Don't get angry at me. Take it up with the people who are making the sandwich bags. And why do I say that? Because where does this sandwich bag end up if I don't throw it in the fire and burn it up and it disappears into nothing? Where does it go? Do you know? It ends up in a landfill. That's right. This sandwich bag, which you say I shouldn't burn in the fire because that pollutes the environment, ends up in a landfill. No, it doesn't get recycled into anything else. If you, if you doubt me, do some research. In fact, 90% of the things that you put into your recycling bin does not get recycled in, in, into anything. Do your research. It ends up in a landfill. The whole recycling, plastic recycling business is a whole, it's a fraud. It's a fraud. So you need to do some research on that. If you're angry, that I would toss this little sandwich bag into the fire and turn it into nothing. Because the alternative is, I carry it out with me, I throw it in my trash, and it ends up in a landfill. Is one better than the other? The answer is no, one is not better than the other. They're different, but one is not better than the other. My town doesn't even offer recycling. But even if my town did offer recycling, and I have experience living in towns that do, they don't take this. They don't take your sandwich bag. They sort that out, and it ends up in a landfill. So a lot of this stuff, you know, that you're not allowed to do that you shouldn't do, it's really, it's really brainless, brainless stuff. It, it, these are habits practiced by people who do not have critical thinking. So if you're a critical thinker, you know that first of all, this little tiny sandwich bag isn't going to destroy the environment. It's just not. Secondly, even if it's so slightly bad for the environment, it's not any worse for the environment than ending up in a landfill. But if you feel better about having your plastic bags end up in a landfill where they will sit there for something like 800 years in the ground, um, that's up to you. I personally think it's better to just toss it in the fire and then I'm done with it. So the feller says that I'm creating more garbage and spending more money in the process. Wrong. I'm not creating any more garbage. I'm creating less garbage. My trash, my little sandwich bag here ends up nothing. I burn it. You can't do that with these. They'll sit there in the fire and they'll cook and cook and cook and cook and cook, but when you leave, that bag's still there, still intact. It might be weakened, but it ain't burnt up. Where does this thing end up? <laughs> Let me ask you that, all right? Well, as long as we're on the topic. So where does the, the packaging for this freeze-dried meal end up when you're done with it and you throw it in your trash? Where does it end up? It ends up in a landfill. This thing can't burn away. My little sandwich bag can. But he says, I'm spending more money in the process. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. He's right. He's right. I think these, these sandwich bags come out to like a penny and a half each. Yeah. Penny and a half to three pennies each. So the argument that I should not do this transfer because it cost me three cents more is not 
a very legitimate reasons, reason not to do it. So think about that. Carry my food in, my cooking stuff, and guess what I come out with? My cooking stuff. Every day, I cook a meal. The plastic bag goes in the fire. It burns up into nothing. And then, I'm lighter, aren't I? I'm lighter, I'm carrying less stuff, I gotta carry less trash. What else? Well, I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, the, the arguments are just ridiculous. You gotta try it. My, my, my whole argument was, I don't wanna cook in my trash. I don't wanna carry the trash. I don't want it to be dependent on the trash. And his arguments are, no, no, you should be. You should cook in the trash. You should be dependent on the trash. And before you say, no, that's not my argument, you're talking about repurposing the trash and using it as part of my whole mentality going into the woods. Okay, if I need to build a shelter, need that trash. No, thank you. No, thank you. I've got my cooking stuff. I've got my cooking stuff. It serves the purpose of cooking. And really, if I could carry my meal without having to use the plastic, I would. But it's no big deal for me to put it in this little tiny sandwich bag. By the way, he says, let's go back to this 30-year shelf life argument. Oh my gosh. I have limited, I have, I have reduced the length of time that I can eat this fr freeze-dried meal by maybe 20 years. Alright. I'm only buying these things for backpacking. These are not in my emergency storage stuff. I, do, I don't buy these freeze-dried meals from my emergency storage. Like I said, I buy rice, beans, spices, uh, you know, stuff like that. The base stuff. Just like the cowboys used to do, right? They'd carry the, the base stuff, and then that gave them all kind of kinds of flexibility about what sort of meal that they wanted that night. They could add things to it, they could take things away. You know, come across some meat, throw the meat in, make a stew, make all sorts of things. So I buy these for backpacking, these freeze-dried meals. And um, if I'm going to be out for five days, I might carry six. So one for each supper of the night, and I might carry an extra one. Here you go. Here's one of those extra ones. This is six months old at least. Guess what? It'll go into my pack for the next backpacking trip. So there is no way in in all of reality that I'm going to need this thing 30 years from now. It just goes into the next pack. It's still good for years. It'll go into the next pack. All right, so didn't mean to get all uppity about that, but you know, sometimes I feel like people make counter arguments before they even think things through or before they've even given it a try. So give it a try. All right, let's get on to, oh, before we move on, I wanted to show you a video that I took earlier today in preparation for this of me cleaning out a mug. So you should start seeing the video right now. Um, here I'm just, what I did was I took a can of soup and uh, I think it's pot pie soup, Campbell's, I poured it into a mug, not the one that I carry into the woods with me. I, this is just a demonstration. But I, I poured it into that mug, prepared it, I ate that soup, and then I, I did this just so I could show you just how simple it is to clean out your cooking gear. People 
You don't have to care. I don't carry soap for that. I don't do anything. I scoop up some water out of a creek. Now in this demonstration, I'm just using a bottle of water, but it's the same principle. I just scoop up some water out of the creek. I use my hand, my bare hand. And I wash out my mug. I don't have to scrub it. I don't have to do anything. I do this immediately after I'm finished eating. Now, why do I not have to carry soap, dish soap, and all that stuff and get all elaborate about it? Because the, my cup is going to go right in the fire in the next, the next time I stop. I'm going to be cooking something hot to drink, or I'm going to be co cooking coffee in it or something, and that water is going to boil right in there. Whatever's in there is going to be completely cleaned out and neutralized if you're worried about bacteria and viruses and stuff like that. It's my cook pot. It's going to be neutralized. So you should see in the video here just how simple it is. There's nothing complex. You don't have to make it any more complex than that. I've washed my spoon, washed my my cook pot there. And there's just a quick demonstration of how that works. No worries. Now let's get on to today's topic because we're going to run out of time. 19 tips for when you're lost. Number one, don't panic. Now, what you really need to do for number one is you need to just sit quietly for a while and take in the woods. The purpose of that is so that you can get a feel for your environment. Now, what is the thing that is probably panicking you? Think about getting lost in the woods. It's happened. I've done it. <laughs> I've done it several times. But when you feel that panic, where's the panic coming from? Is it coming from a fear that you're going to die? Not usually. Not usually. You know what the panic really is coming from? If Monday comes and I'm not at my desk at work, people are going to be wondering where I'm at. Think about that. That's where your original panic comes from. Oh my gosh. If I'm a day late coming out of here, it's going to mess up all my plans for next week. That's where the panic comes from. It's not really from a fear of death. Now you sit, think about that for a little bit. You tell me if that ain't true. That's where the panic comes from. So really silly reasons to get panicked is what I'm saying. The initial panic that you feel when at first you realize you're lost are some really silly things. Th things that really you don't need. The world is not going to end if you're not at your desk on Tuesday morning or whatever. The world is not going to end if you got to mix up some plans for the next week or you got to explain to somebody why you why you're a day late on things the world is not going to end so don't panic do the opposite of what feels natural to do you know what feels natural to do start you know racing up every hill up down every trail and everything and trying to get figure out where you're at don't do that sit down it's counterintuitive but it's the thing you need to do sit down get a feel for your environment there's something very interesting about the woods, which is, even for me, and I, I, you know, I grew up in the woods my entire life, grew up in the deep back country. I feel great intimacy with the woods. But every time I go on that next backpacking trip, I don't immediately have a sense of my environment. It takes a little while to ease back into it. That's because when you get into any kind of new environment in the wilderness, all of it seems like, like there's no rhyme or reason to it. But 
if you just get in there and you sit for a minute or so, maybe even a half hour, maybe even an hour, and you just kind of take in your surroundings, well then a rhyme and a reason does begin to become apparent to you. You begin to understand how the, the hills and the hollers flow, the way, the, the, the type of environment you're looking at. Are you looking at a marsh area? Are you looking at a dry area? Are you looking at a deciduous area? Are you looking at, uh, you know, uh, these sorts of things? So you start to get a feel for it. Number two, don't decide. Now, and so now that now you've sat down and you're just kind of taking in your surroundings, don't decide on a course of action until you're completely calm. Don't decide on a course of action until you're completely calm. If you start making decisions while you're not calm, they'll be the wrong decisions. So get calm. Then with a clear mind, you can make the best decisions. To help yourself get calmer, remind yourself of this. Pretty much anywhere in the United States, and it's probably true for a lot of other places too, you know, I know I was over there in Scotland, over there in the UK, and uh, I know it's true over there too, that if you walk in one direction long enough, you will come to a road or other signs of civilization. All right, so if you keep that in mind, pretty much anywhere you're at in the world all you got to do is just pick a direction walk in that and if you do that long enough you'll come to a road or other signs of civilization and listen I've used that I've told you that I've gotten lost multiple times for real and I really have and I have and I have fallen back on that I've used that I've said you know what first of all it's no big deal if I'm not at work on Monday Secondly, there's no reason for me to panic because all I have to do is pick a direction. Any direction, I will come across a road. And it inevitably, that's what happens. <clears throat> Number four, if you're at a high elevation, move to a lower elevation. Because you're going to find more resources there. You're going to find an increased likelihood of homes, cabins, roads, and most importantly, number five, flowing water. You come across flowing water, you want to follow that downstream. In other words, you want to go in the direction that the water flows. Why is that? Because water connects to water. So for example, stream to creek, creek to river, river to ocean. So while you're following the water downstream, what you want to do is you want to switch each time to following the larger water flow downstream. So if you come, let's say you're following a stream or brook and you come to a, a quite a large creek, you want to start following the creek. Which direction you want to follow the creek? Downstream. Creek comes to a river, empties out into a river. Now you want to follow the river. Which direction? Downstre downstream. So think about this. If you're following water, which is, it's, it's the perfect way not to get lost in the woods in the first place, is if you always stick close to the flow of water. Uh, when I was out 
in the mountains uh, back in November. Uh, past some hunters. It was getting real dark. Here these hunters come out from the middle of nowhere. My friend says, I wonder, I wonder how they got back there so far and didn't get lost. I said, well, they were following the creek. The creek leads right back to the road. <laughs> and that's, that's what they were doing. So while they were hunting out in the middle of nowhere, they were never straying too far from that creek. And that's how they got deep in. That's how they got out even in the uh, disappearing daylight. So remember that. Uh, water is your highway to help you maintain a course. And it very probably leads to people. At any rate, number six, your priority is not food. No, it's not. Your priority is not food. It's water. So, in most cases, your list of priorities goes like this. Water, shelter, fire, and then food. In most situations, you know, each situation is different, but I would say most situations, that's the order of priority of things. So, what does if you're following flowing water at all times, what does that eliminate? Well, that eliminates you constantly having to search out your number one priority, doesn't it? Yeah, your number one priority is always water. Number seven, remember that stopping to rest and regain calmness along the way is rarely a bad thing. Number eight, a shattered rock is a knife. And most rocks shatter pretty easily. And when they do, they're usually really sharp. So a shattered rock is a knife is number eight. Number nine, learn and master various methods of fire making now, not then. You want to be good at that now. Number ten, if you're lost in wintertime, try not to sweat. Your dry clothes are your first defense against hypothermia. If they get wet with your sweat from hiking and from other forms of exertion, that will kill you. Number 11. If you're lost in the heat of summer, don't overexert. Heat stroke is a very real killer. I've seen it work. Not on myself because I'm very practical about things. I don't. I try not to overexert myself ever. If it takes me five hours to go up a mountain that I could really hustle and get up in 30 minutes, but it's 90 degrees outside, guess what? I take my time. I take my time. I do whatever I have to do not to overheat. So heat stroke really sneaks up on you. And let's say you're out and it's 100 degrees outside and it's like, you know, 98% humidity. There are very few remedies that you have out in the natural world for bringing your body temperature down. So I, ha I had a friend, we were out uh, backpacking, this was about four years ago. Uh, it's actually the friend that you saw in my video from back in November, but he was on a health kick. He was feeling very athletic and everything, and he, man, he's just wanting to, to chug down the, the trail. I kept telling him, 
listen, we, we don't have to go that fast. Listen, just, just take your time. We, we're not in a hurry. We will cover the distance that we want to cover without having to, to exert ourselves like that. So there's no reason to exert ourselves like that. But he, he wanted to go. He wanted to go. And he did that right, right up to the verge of, of heat stroke. Really did. And um, it was just, it was so fortunate that it happened when it happened because when he hit his limit there and it was starting to affect him, you could see him, his, he wasn't, his brain wasn't working right and he was disoriented and all this stuff and I thought, oh my gosh, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. There just so happened, <laughs> stroke of luck, just so happened to be a cave right there, a big cave, this big rock lip that come out over this thing. And I said, we need to get in there. We got in there and you could just feel the temperature drop like 25 degrees, just instantly once we got into that cave. And then there was this very small brook or creek, half dried up, but the water in it was freezing cold. So you see, we did luck out in that occasion. He did have some ways to bring his body temperature down right when he needed to and we just really we really lucked out on that occasion so you know that's unusual most of the time you're out in a hot environment like that and you're not careful and you start to go into heat stroke um, there's very few things you can do about it out there you, you're gonna have to find some shade but shade is not the same as a an ice cold cave or an ice cold creek you know, so really what you, if you were to do that in civilization, what they do, you just throw your ice on you, ice water, get anything to bring your, your body temperature down. So we, I ended up having to evacuate him from that trip. And, uh, we, we actually, we bushwhacked, uh, we couldn't stay on the trail, but he had to lay there. First of all, he laid there for five hours, taking a nap, waiting for his body temperature to come down. And it, it was scary. Once it finally did, then uh, I, that whole time I was doing some research, trying to figure out the best way to get him out of there. And we ended up bushwhacking and coming to a road, and, and I got him out that way. Number 12, um, educate yourself on the telltale signs of things like hypothermia and hyperthermia. Now, not then. And the proper immediate steps necessary to neutralize them folks th these are real things and they are really scary so really do your research about these things if you're going to be out in the wilderness you want to start doing things like i'm doing them you, you need to know about those things you need to know what do i do number 13 insulate yourself from the ground at night no matter the season so a lot of you know a lot of you don't know that the ground just will suck every ounce of heat out of your body that doesn't matter if it's winter or summer. So to insulate yourself from the ground, uh, you can do that with leaves. You can do it with branches. Do it with whatever you take, whatever it takes. So if you're in a, in like on a pine forest, you can cut a bunch of pine branches, and they're very springy. You wouldn't think that they'd be very comfortable, but they are, because they've got this spring to them. And uh, once you get on top of them, especially if you're layered up, um, you won't feel uncomfortable it'll be as soft and as comfortable as your bed at home but 
remember that the purpose is not <laughs> comfort. The purpose is to keep you insulated from the ground. And I wrote this. I wrote this list of things uh, about five years ago, and uh, 14 is one. It's still useful, but I'd like to add something to it here tonight. Uh, so what 14 says is burying yourselves in leaves or branches can substitute for a blanket. In the winter time, the branches will need to be of an evergreen variety, and the end result should be very, very generous insulation on bottom or below you, and very generous insulation on top. I mean, basically, you're, you're like a beaver, man. You're just building a huge stack of branches. Uh, but what I'd like to add to that is, since I wrote this list, what's even would be more what's even superior to that is always being able to start fire so if you can get a nice fire started and get up next to that fire and just sleep all night next to that fire and just keep that fire fed all night that's a superior thing to sleeping under a bunch of branches um and while we're talking about this i've been wanting to mention this for a while You've seen in a lot of these bushcraft videos, these folks build these uh, reflecting walls, right? Oh, they look sweet, don't they? They look really sweet. So they'll, they'll drive in four posts on each side, and then they cut uh, lengths of logs, and then they slide them into those support, uh, in those support beams that they've put in the ground. And what they've done, they do then is they create a wall and the idea is that you build your fire in front of that wall and your shelter just on the other side of that. So you guys see what I'm saying? Imagine you're sitting in your shelter looking out. Right in front of the shelter, you got your fire. And right behind the fire, you'd have that, they call it a reflecting wall. All the bushcraft guys. And oh boy, it looks pretty. Well, guess what? They don't work. Yeah, they don't work. They don't do a thing. They don't do a thing. And that makes a lot of bushcrafters mad when, when I bring that up. But it's true. It doesn't do a thing. So don't waste your time. Anybody who knows better is going to look at your silly reflecting wall and say, boy, you sure did a lot of work for nothing, didn't you? It doesn't do a thing. And if you doubt it, uh, go over to North... What's that guy's channel's name? Yeah, uh, here far north, far north bushcraft. Yeah, a guy who owns the channels, Lonnie. I hope he's doing all right. By the way, he hasn't uploaded any new material for over a year. So far north bushcraft, the guy he does a excellent video on this. Sets up a plank of plywood in front of a fire, big old plank of fire of uh, a plywood. Gets the fire going, and for hours he sits around that fire on every side with a thermometer checking the temperature and there's no difference whatsoever no difference it, it doesn't reflect anything back so there is an exception to the the whole concept of a reflecting wall you know what that that uh, exception is stone stone so if you can find a large stone and build your fire in front of that stone and then so that the fire is between you and this large stone face uh, that works as a reflecting wall do you know why 
do you know why that works but the building a wooden quote-unquote reflector wall doesn't work it's because the stone heats up yeah the stone absorbs the heat from the fire and then radiates the heat so you'll see me doing that I will when I'm out in the wilderness uh, I did it back in November you know you should be seeing a video of that now build it right there in front of that uh, big stone poking up out of the ground and boy that was nice so if you're lost in the woods and you have the option to do that oh definitely do it you get that fire nice and hot in front of that stone and you can just kind of curl up right up against the stone even and have that heat the the heat that is it is absorbing from the the campfire radiating out back back at you even into your your own body it's very nice all right so that was number 14 number 15 study some techniques for crude shelter construction with wilderness materials now not then again um, most of the time you're not going to need a shelter you're, you're not going to need a shelter to protect you from cold all you need for that is a fire and really if you're building a, a shelter every night you're going to be using up more calories and energy than you can afford so it's not a good idea to build shelters when you don't have to build shelters but there will be situations you know if you were lost in big old snowstorm hit you definitely want to have have some shelter from that uh, any pine tree any like very thick uh, pine tree that you can get down around the base of uh, that's usually shelter enough that'll protect you from snow to pr protect you from rain from elements like that and uh, requires no work you don't have to build anything so I probably I would update that I would I would not encourage people now to study techniques techniques for crude shelter construction because it turns into just this big play thing and uh, the harm that it causes I think is more than the good it causes you're, you're better off just finding a, a log to climb under or something like that 16 turn your cell phone completely off anytime it can't find a signal a phone that is constantly searching for a signal will die very quickly reserve attempts to use this phone for when you're at higher elevations or in open large open spaces that's when you have a higher likelihood of finding a signal so what you want to do you want to get your phone power it on check it see if you get a signal if it can't find a signal then you want to power it back off and wait until again you're in an open space or at a higher elevation that's when you're going to have a a greater likelihood of finding a signal the areas where I go only at the very tops of these mountains is it likely at all that I will get a signal so I just keep my phone off for the entire time now I will get up sometimes on a mountain ridge and I'll be along the top of this mountain ridge and in those cases I'll just keep my phone on for the the length of time that I'm up on top of that highest ridge uh, but once I start to descend I get my phone out I turn it off um, the reason for that is uh, that your your phone as long as it's powered on as long as it's searching for a signal but can't find a signal that will drain your battery very very quickly very quickly so that's why you want to make sure that your phone is 
at least on airplane mode, at least. But better than that is to power it off completely. Since it's not getting a signal, um, you, you might as well not be wasting all that, that battery power. 17. Invest now in any GPS app for your phone that works entirely off your phone's GPS. Um, I think I've explained in the past that the, the maps, like um, Apple Maps, uh, Google Maps, those sorts of things, they, they work in combination with your phone signal and a GPS signal. Or, let's say it this way, your phone's cellular signal in combination with GPS data. So Apple Maps isn't going to do me any good whatsoever out in the middle of the wilderness, out in the middle of the mountains. I've invested in a few apps that work entirely off the GPS only on my phone. It can be an invaluable lifesaver. That's what I used to get my buddy out of the woods when he was on the verge of heat stroke. So I was able to pull out the GPS um, app that works only with the satellite doesn't doesn't depend on my phone my phone's cellular signal and i was able to find out where we were at and where the nearest road was see certain landmarks and figure out how to cut through there to get to the road in the least amount of time so these things work regardless of how far from a self tower you might find yourself they work entirely on satellite data 18 if you come to a cabin or an unoccupied home, don't be hesitant to break a window or a door to get inside. The law makes allowances for survival situations. However, and I know that that's a hard one. Um, you know, you come across somebody else's home, like a, it, it, when I've been lost, um, I've come down off the mountain and I've come across hunter's cabins. Now I wasn't in a, I wasn't in dire straits. Otherwise, I would have broken into those hunters' cabins and used them if my life were in danger. But even if your life is in danger, your default reaction to that thought might be, "Well, I can't do that because that belongs to somebody else, and that's not polite and everything like that." Listen, if your life's in danger, that is not the time to be worrying to be worrying about that. You need to be worried about staying alive. Like I said, the law makes certain allowances for those sorts of things. If you do break into somebody else's cabin or something like that, you know, you, you want to be ready to explain yourself to the owner and why you are inside uh, their property. You want to show respect for their property once you're in there. But if you find food, eat it. If you find a source of heat, fire her up. If there's a bed, help yourself to it. The middle of a survival situation is not the appropriate time to be fretting about how you're going to be responsible for compensating the owners after your res rescue. Yes, you will be responsible for compensating them, but that's not, you understand what I'm saying. In that moment, when you're in a survival situation, is not the time to be worrying or thinking about those things. Be aware of it, but don't be sitting around letting it uh, sway your decision about whether or not you should keep yourself alive. And number 19, don't imitate Bear Grylls. Ah, you knew it was coming. 
That's right. No unnecessary jumping, sliding, climbing, running, pee drinking. That's a good way to burn thousands more calories than you can afford to burn, as well as get injured. In fact, unless you understand that Bear Grylls show is entirely staged, don't watch it at all. I personally like to watch it from time to time. And not anymore, but I mean, in the past, I, I enjoyed watching it. But that was only because I knew it was staged. Cracks me up that when he got caught sleeping in hotels and stuff like that, the public was outraged. You know why they were outraged? They thought like a little drone was following him around in the forest. I don't know what they thought. I don't know what they thought, but literally millions of people it did not occur to them that somebody has to be filming him doing these things that somebody's holding a camera and following him through the wilderness and it turned out it wasn't just somebody it was like a whole team of people you know bear grills his show staged there are some benefits to he you know it's not a complete waste of time that show uh, I, I learned about some interesting gear from that show i mean the the water bottle in the mug that I use. I was introduced from by Bear Grylls, and I'll tell you, I've tried every water bottle and mug on the market, and I still believe this one to be the absolute best. The, it's just perfect. So it's not a complete waste of time, but you know, except for the, like the eating bugs and drinking his own pee, most of that stuff is fake. E even when he builds a raft and goes riding down a river on that raft, he didn't build it. Um, when I was a, a kid, I tried to build a raft that would be water worthy, you know, that would hold my weight as a kid, as a kid. And what I learned from that experience is you need a lot of wood, a lot of significantly large wood strung together very firmly and tightly to be able to hold your body weight. That was when I was a kid. First time I tried it, I failed. Second time I tried it, I failed. Third time I tried it, it worked, but the water was coming up over the raft and soaking me. So, you know, forget about this whole idea of being on this really nice, beautiful, dry raft. Uh, and finally, the last time I did it, do you know how I was most successful building a raft? We built the raft, me and some of my cousins, built the raft out on this pond, and then we brought down... I'm, I'm talking about maybe 50 uh, two-liter bottles, these plastic pop bottles. You know, like you buy Coke in a two-liter plastic bottle. So we brought down probably 50 or 60 empty bottles like that, and we stuffed them up underneath there. That's actually what kept the raft afloat, finally, like you would see in a movie. The wood itself did not do that, and these were quite large logs so when you see him build a log raft just out of logs and it's like done he's you know he's done in 30 minutes finishes it in the same day it's like the sun hasn't even gone down and he gets on that thing and it holds his weight and he's going down a river he didn't do that he wouldn't be able to do that not in a day not in two days he's got a whole team there dragging those things out stringing them together, 
and then and then Bear Grylls just gets on it and sh and shows it that it works. So you know that's something to keep in mind. He has a team, uh, 30 team members behind the camera with a full lunch from Subway, <laughs> so he can recharge his batteries every three hours. Think about that. He's stopping for lunch, having lunch, taking a rest, maybe a little nap. Then the team will say, okay, lunch time's over. He gets up, and then they film some more. Is, is that going to be the reality you're dealing with if you're lost in the backcountry? No, it's not. His team are carrying professional GPS equipment and satellite phones. They've scouted out these filming locations meticulously beforehand. He has a team of safety professionals tying him to repellent lines, a medical staff, and a helicopter on standby. Are you going to have that in a true survival situation if you're lost out in the woods? No, of course not. That's why I say, if you are not smart enough to distinguish Bear, Bear Grylls and the things he does from reality, don't watch Bear Grylls. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you in the next episode of The Practical Woodsman. <laughs>